Hey, Property Insiders, I'm Mike Stenhouse, and this is the Inside Property Investing Podcast. You are in the right place if you are an aspiring or existing investor looking to build a portfolio and a property business that works for you. And from this podcast, you're going to learn from all of my insights and advice from over a decade in the industry, as well as the lessons learned from hundreds of other successful investors. So you can listen to what worked for them and avoid what didn't. I hope you enjoy today's podcast and whatever you're up to today, I hope you have a fantastic day. Thanks for listening. Today's guest, Tom Rourke, is a member of the IPI Mastermind. I have had the pleasure of getting to know him over the past six months. I cannot take any credit for his past success. And this isn't to brag about, oh, we've been able to turn around his business overnight. It's really just to say I'm thrilled to get to surround myself with people like Tom who have achieved what he has achieved in, in a relatively short space of time. And I'm hoping that this interview today will give you some idea, some inspiration of what is possible in, you know, for Tom, I think maybe four or five years of dedicated investing, but alongside a pretty busy and hectic day job slash career as well. And I love lots of things about what he's done. I love his approach to HMO investing, not being scared of Article 4 areas, really embracing kind of bigger is better and getting some phenomenal returns by looking at large HMO properties, kind of eight, nine plus up to 12 bedroom sizes, which a lot of people shy away from, but can be a real opportunity. I love his approach to how he's funded his deals and using his corporate background and connections to really build up a, a niche for what he does and, and build a, a reputation as the go-to guy for anyone else that is in that industry. And he's, he's really tapped into that and used that to his advantage to allow him to raise capital to continue growing the portfolio. So I'm sure you will get a ton of insights and tips and and hopefully a whack of inspiration from what he's been able to achieve and the, the stories that he shares throughout today's podcast. Well, Tom, I am thrilled to have you on the show. I've, uh, I've said the pleasure of getting to know you over the past, uh, I was going to say maybe three, four, five, six months now. It's been, it's been a little while since we've, uh, We've been spending time together, but I'm, I'm thrilled to have you here today to share some of your your insights and your expertise with the the broader podcast. So thanks for taking the time out of your day to be here. Yeah, thanks for having me, Mike. It's um, you know I'm I'm sure you get this a lot. I've listened and followed your podcast for probably I'm guessing about four or five years, um, and then obviously we've got to know each other quite quite a lot over the, with with your mastermind um, sort of program. Um, uh, so yeah, it's nice to finally have reached the holy grail pinnacle of getting on your podcast. <laughs> well, I, I'm genuinely thrilled to have you. And it, it's funny, you know, I, um, obviously we, we haven't released, uh, I, I said to you before we started recording, I'm a bit rusty. I haven't done this for a while. And, uh, you know, there's, there's no rhyme or reason really to, to how we find guests for the show. I, the, the mastermind is great hunting ground, obviously, but sometimes yeah. I just see a post on Instagram and I'm like, yeah, they look like they're got something interesting to say. And other times it's somebody has been in front of me for years and then I'm like, why haven't you been on the podcast yet? So, yeah. um, I, yeah, I, uh, if anyone's sitting here thinking I'm offended, I've never been asked on, let me know. Cause, uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I, I'm always open to, to conversations, but I'm, I'm genuinely excited to share a bit of your story, Tom, cause from what I have seen, um, 
you know, you're, you're doing some, some exciting things and there, there's a few parts of your, your own story in particular that I'm excited to, to dig into in a little bit more detail. But, um, I guess a bit of background, first of all, some context set the scene, let us know, you know, pre-property, we all had something going on before property came in and became an obsession for us. So what was, what was your life like before you started investing? Yeah. Um, I mean, I sort of effectively, I'm a doctor. Uh, by by trade, I guess, um, and I I'm an ear, nose, and throat consultant surgeon. Um, mm. Qualified from med school way back in 2003 in Nottingham, okay. um, and then sort of worked my way around various parts of the country over sort of ten ten years or so. Well, probably about five or six years as a, as a junior doc, and then I got my um, registrar training job in ear, nose, and throat surgery um based in the sort of Thames Valley Oxfordshire um Berkshire kind of area um so I did that from 2008 through to about 2015 um and then um got my consultant job in Reading um and that was you know a real I guess I've talked about this a lot you know to others but it was a real kind of end game kind of kind of sort of big goal to achieve I'd been working mm-hmm. towards it from five years in med school, 12, 13 years sort of training as a, as a junior doc and all that kind of stuff. And yeah, it was a, it was a great thing to have achieved. Um, but then I sort of kind of got maybe, maybe two, two, three years into that and just started having this kind of, I've almost felt like an, an early midlife crisis, I guess, where I had a real recognized recognition of what my life was going to look like career wise, um, where I was going to go through with that. Um, and, and it was just going to lead me, you know, down a long, a long 25 year path of, of daily grind. And it was, um, you know, not that I was, not that I was afraid of hard work, but, um, became very obvious that my, my income was highly reliant on my time. Uh, And I think that was the thing that sort of became, became apparent, read all the classical books, uh, did all the sort of podcasting and that kind of stuff. But then, um, Rich Dad Poor Dad was probably the book that I read that kind of resonated with me at the time. I was already having those kind of thoughts. And yep. That's where I sort of started to look at maybe, well, is there something else outside of medicine that I could do as a potential career? It sounds as though almost a little bit of um, you know, kind of ladder propped against the wrong wall type thing. You got you got to the top and looked around and realized, is this actually what I want to spend the rest of my life doing? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I'd I'd sort of decided to be a medic from a very young age. You know, there's a, I was looking back the other day, there's a yearbook I wrote when I was 10 years old at school saying I wanted to be a bone doctor, you know? Oh, wow. Uh, okay. Mum and dad were dentists. Uh, my grandfather was GP, you know, mm-hmm. so there was a, a fairly strong medical background. And I think when I started, you know, saying that I might want to be a medic, I think there was a, there was a strong encouragement to that. I had a bit of a wobble probably when I was about 16 and thought, do I want to go and do economics, you know, business, that kind of thing. Um, you know, if I had the time again, in fact, my dad asked me the other day, he said on holiday, he said, if you could go back and do medicine as a career, would you, would you do it again? You know, go to med school. And I said, I probably wouldn't actually, I'd probably go and do something like economics or business. Um, just because so you've always had I, that kind of split desire, the, the business yeah, side of things so. always been there in the background. I think so. But you know, you can, you can imagine how it is, you know, you sort of every, I guess every parent loved their kid to be a doctor and that was strongly encouraged. And I don't, I don't for one day ever regret going to med school and I have and still do enjoy 
a really rewarding career in medicine. It's fantastic. You know, there's, mm-hmm. there's, there's so many positives to it. But there was this kind of burning desire, really, without being too cliched, to, to see if I could go for it in, a, in, in business and, and, and set up my own company and, and create, I guess, again, without using too many cliches, but create a legacy that, that I, I could prove to myself that I could do that, really. Uh, you, I mean, you're on a podcast, Tom. I think we can, it, it's the one place where cliches are uh, definitely allowed, so we can, we can roll with them. It's, it's funny, though, it just it kind of gets me thinking when you said about, you know, every, every parent wants their kid to be a doctor. I went to, I went to a, a you know, reasonably good uh, high school, and, and it was the same there. The, the holy grail for our um, sort of university admissions department, and I guess if your school's got somebody that focuses on getting their students into good universities, you know, it's, it's kind of, that's something that they care about. Uh, it was, so Oxbridge, if we could get them into Oxford or Cambridge, big tick. If we could push them down either uh, medicine or law, um, that was seen as, oh, well, that'll look good in the prospectus for all of our new little primary one students coming in and their yeah. parents. And I got pushed down that law route because I didn't really know what else I wanted to do. And I lasted <clears throat> three three months. I did my first term at Glasgow and realized, no, this isn't for me. Um, but yeah, it's it's kind of got me thinking now as well with with a little girl, you know, how, how do you navigate that, you know, your own... Um, preferences or desires or kind of, a, you know, everyone had good intentions, you know, go and be a lawyer and you'll have a good career and go to a good university and you'll be set for life and all that sort of stuff. But almost to the detriment of, well, what do you actually want to do? And it's, I think it's, it's hard when you're 16 to decide for the rest of your life. And it's no surprise. I think that, you know, a lot of us spend a few years or longer doing something and then realize actually, if I had my time again, I would change it or, you know, I'm going to, yeah. I'm going to take a complete 180 and go off in a different direction but not the subject of today's podcast but it's an interesting one i think there has been on that there has been a big shift you know i see i'm i've done a lot of supervision of junior doctors without Mm. getting too too much off piece but you know from 10 15 20 years ago you it was a you were a lifer you know you got in that was it medicine was your career and there's definitely more kind of a younger generation of doctors coming through who love medicine want to be a doctor but also appreciate life outside of medicine and, and maybe want to do other careers alongside medicine, that kind of thing. There's definitely become a, a shift on that. As you say, probably not quite on what we're meant to be talking about today. No, but it's, it's interesting nonetheless. And I guess with the NHS and, you know, it probably needs to be more flexible to retain that expertise. Otherwise, I guess we end up in a situation where we don't have enough doctors, nurses, medical staff to, to look after us. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay. So Rich Dad Poor Dad came along, um, and I mean, had you had any notions about investing in property? Had you, you know, had you been an accidental landlord? Had you renovated your own family home? Any of those sort of stuff? Uh, yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd not been a landlord, um, but uh, I think my first sort of, well, mum and dad had built, um, they built a house when I was about 12 okay. um, in Norfolk where I grew up. and. That was I found that fascinating. That was you know uh, an acre of land with that was a, a forest, and I remember going there, cutting trees down with Dad to create room to build the house and all this kind of stuff. Nice. Um, probably wouldn't be allowed to do that these days with cutting <laughs> uh, rules, but anyway, you were you were back in the sort of um, early nineties. But um, and that that kind of I found that interesting. And then my my first job, um, I remember 
qualifying from, uh, sorry, I finished my A-levels and I finished my A-levels on my 18th birthday and went out that night, had a great night out. Dad came in the morning and said, uh, um, do you have a good night? I said, yeah. He said, right, here's 20 quid. Go out tonight and have another good night out. And I thought, wow, he's being really kind to me. Where's this come from? Um, he said, no, it's fine. You go enjoy tonight. But on Monday, you start work on the building site and you're going to be the labourer. And we're doing, we were doing an extension on the house. So that was my first job, um, sort of proper job, I guess. And I did that sort of probably for about six months or so. And I just absolutely loved it. Worked with the builder. I was kind of the real, the real lucky labourer. I'd make the tea. I'd lift the bricks. I'd make the cement. Yeah. Uh, absolutely for me probably almost was still my most my, my favorite job actually and that was kind of got me into property mum and dad built another house about 10 years later when they moved to Ireland so that was sort of in in my kind of I just found that interesting and then for me the first property I bought was in about 2009 um got very lucky bought it right at the at the bottom of the market um had no idea that I was doing that at the time of course um but renovated that property. It was a sort of three-bed um, uh, property in Oxfordshire area um, and did that sort of top-to-toe. I had trades in to help with the bigger stuff like the new roof and we took out a big, big old load-bearing wall. But okay. I did quite a lot of work, you know, stripping out some some fairly uh, basic electrics, plumbing, um, painting, loads of all that kind of stuff, tiling. So kind of from that was the point that I really realized I, I enjoyed doing it and, and really could see the the benefits of of renovating property really got you and then the the, the passion is obviously there but you're you're fairly settled i presume good income good career family you read rich dad poor dads I'm, I'm i'm trying to understand how you go from that it's a, all kind of external participants, I'm sure, very successful life to having the conversation, first of all, with yourself and then maybe with your spouse or family saying, you know what, I want to go off in a, a different direction in the first instance, just as a, a kind of part time alongside medicine. So maybe it wasn't that dramatic, but it still must have been a a, a difficult conversation for you to have with yourself and with others. Yeah, it was really hard, actually. To be honest with you, Mike, it was um, was a it was a tough time of my my life. We were kind of it was probably over about an eighteen month period, I guess, where I I started to just have the these realization that medicine probably wasn't the career I wanted to spend all of my time doing for the next mm-hmm. twenty five years, um, and wanted to create a business it became increasingly obvious that property probably was the vehicle for that business in a way and some form of lettings rental business was probably the starting point um uh getting to the point where that actually happened was yeah quite quite a journey uh took me probably six months of just learning and reading and listening to podcasts and just sussing it out i I kind of initially thought i'd probably go into sort of stocks and shares investing and that and that kind of process but okay didn't have, didn't have any kind of capital base to for that to work out really so it was more a case of I've, I've got to generate uh profit and 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 create a business and therefore property kind of fit fit nicely with that um having those conversations with my wife was a tough one you know sort of turning around saying right here we are we've got nice house good income 
Uh, we had a we had a little daughter at the time who was probably about six to nine months old. Okay. Um, uh, our first perfect timing to start a new business. Then. Yeah, exactly. You know, you know, <laughs> why all, not? All, all adds up, doesn't it? You know, um, and she thought I was absolutely crazy. Yeah. Um, but kind of had my back and kind of understood it. Could see that I was not that happy with my career path. Um, okay. I didn't want to give medicine up full time. I just wanted to just just have an opportunity to do something different, really, uh, and see see how I could go with that. And it was I kind of got to the point where I was, you know, mid 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 to late thirties, and I thought if I don't give it a shot now, I feel like I'm going to regret it for the rest of my life. Um, so just took the plunge and went for it, you know. And when was this from a, a time frame point of view? How long ago are we talking? 2017 was probably when I first started to have the inner, inner mumblings and rumblings. And then, um, I, I actually did, um, uh, the Simon Zucci's property mastermind. That was sort of my first real commitment into it. I started that in October, 2018, mm-hmm. um, and did that for a year basically. So that was sort of the starting point of my sort of property investing journey. And did you go into that with any clear idea of the type of property, the location, I know now your your focus is kind of student. Well, we'll get onto that, but it's it's uh, you know HMOs is is what keeps you busy. Was that the intention from day one, or did you go at it with a kind of blank canvas? I don't know what I want to do, so let's just be a sponge and absorb as much as we can. Yeah, I mean, I well, I kind of rather naively was chasing this the sort of shiny pennies. So I did two masterminds at the same time. Um, I did uh, did the Simon Zucci mastermind. I also did the um, the White Box mastermind, which is a sort of property development focused mastermind. Yeah, um, with um, Lloyd and Andy. Yeah, exactly. So I yeah. did that. Okay. Started those more or less, I think, from memory, about the same time. Um, so I was going to do, you know, build a load of houses, do a load of HMOs, do loads of service accommodation. It was all going to be done at the same time, um, and that really was just completely unrealistic got about six months into doing both of those and doing property development you know building houses renovating big projects and that kind of stuff very obviously was going to require a lot of money and probably not generate much income so in the short term at least so i i kind of for me it was i need a strategy that creates me some cash flow which allows me to replace some of my immediate income and that was kind of the goal so HMOs just stuck out like a sore thumb for that. I, I like the idea of having an asset rather than going down the sort of serviced accommodation, um, you know, rent to SA kind of model. I, I still think there's some legs in that, but um, for me, it was I, I really wanted a, something there to to have a to, to sort of call my own, as it were, but also something mm-hmm. that was going to generate some income from rental and HMOs. Sort of sat nicely with that. Okay, and um, from a location point of view, you've kept it close to home. Was that intentional? Um, do you, sorry, do you say that again, Mike? So you, From you a, a location point of view, your investment patch, I guess you've, you, you know, you, you weren't rushing up to, to Newcastle or the Northwest chasing the, the lowest price properties. Was that always intentional from, from the start? I, I, I see a lot of new HMO investors thinking, well, where's the cheapest place in the UK that we can invest? And, you know, I think that introduces a whole host of different problems, um, but it's, it's a driving force for sure for people thinking, where can my money go the furthest? And if you live anywhere sort of south of Birmingham, it's often not on your doorstep. Yeah. I mean, I think I, I, I took quite a lot of time to sort of think this over. Um, and, and you're right. There is that sort of attraction of the better yields up north. I guess the 
the issue I had down south was you're trying to create deals where not only you're earning income, but you're trying not to leave too much money in the deals. Mm. Um, for me, I guess location became more important than than the numbers initially, at least. Um, and that's why I kind of decided to try and try and get a model that worked down south, at least. Um, I, okay. I didn't fancy a lot of long journeys and driving up north. I just it just it just became a priority to have something locally, and that was that was the leading kind of driver, really. Yeah. And what was the first sort of proper investment project that you started working on? So we actually did um, did a four bed HMO. Um, it was a um, uh, a de- exchange and delayed completion, actually. So we were sort of landlord letters. I was in the middle of of the sort of Simon Zucci mastermind, pin mastermind, and that was being pushed as a very good way to sort of potentially source properties. Um, got, got got chatting to a land landlady who had quite a sizable portfolio of HMOs in High Wycombe, um, which is near to me, and I sort of felt that would be a good investment area. Um, the property was on the market, and um, I think it was on at two sixty, but it wasn't selling. It wasn't in the best part of High Wycombe. Okay, um, I think we agreed a purchase price of two twenty in the end, um, but with a five month, six month delayed um, completion between um, exchange and completion, basically to allow us to do the conversion works that we wanted to do to convert it into a into a four bed HMO. Okay, sounds uh, pretty interesting and you know yeah. not not i suppose your your most conventional purchase but did that help you um that sort of creative purchase allow you to to get started Did you find that that was beneficial for you yeah i mean it mean it meant that we didn't have to we we minimized any bridging costs we had no bridging costs because we didn't have to buy it um yep. we had to pay a 10 percent deposit obviously on exchange um the stamp duty we didn't have to pay at that stage so that minimized our cost so all we really had to put in was some legal fees, uh, uh, 10% deposit. I think we'd agreed a 5% deposit actually. Um, and then it was the renovation cost really. So, um, and that, that strategy was something that was born out from my training with, with the pin mastermind and, and other listening. So it was just, um, I think it, it made life a bit easier. I think the initial, I'm just trying to remember the initial time frame we'd agreed was four months, which looking back on it was wildly optimistic. We had to go out and renegotiate that and extend that out to about five, five and a half to six months, but it just minimized the overall cost basically. So it was a useful thing to do. And I'm, I'm interested because I, I, I hear about this regularly, almost not luck. I don't want to say, say luck or fluke, but you know, I, I, I see regularly people who, you know, one Zucci's students or graduates are, are, are often uh, the ones on the podcast to talk through these more creative options. And I think there's, there's a, an, an element of naivety sometimes that, oh, well, you know, somebody's told me I can do this, so I'm going to go out and do it. And then after you get a bit more experience, you almost become, oh, well, you know, people don't really accept options anymore. And you kind of talk yourself out of it and you just start doing more conventional deals. Have you, have you done many more of them since? And is it something that you, you still focus on now that you're more established looking for exchange and delayed completion or option agreements or things like that? Um, I think the short answer is probably no. Um, I have done uh, an option agreement uh, in the last 12 months. Um, I think you're right. They're a hard sell. You know, it's a difficult one to convince a seller, particularly a seller who's not a landlord, is not a property investor, 
when you're saying, well, here's an option agreement, like an option what? You know, it's kind of, it's it's a very tough sell, I think, to, to, to convince people of that, unless you're in a situation where the property really isn't selling and they've become quite motivated. Mm-hmm. Um, most of the properties we've bought in the last three to four years have been via the traditional method of, um, you know, buy it on the open market and then uh, just try and you know we do sometimes delay the sale um uh to, to sort of get as much of the planning work as we can uh, over the line before we complete commit to the purchase that's not always possible but um yeah i haven't done a bucket load of option agreements sort of no. probably i think two in total really so yeah yeah it's it's funny like i say i do, I do tend to see them uh almost more commonly with with newer investors um yeah, i think I you know it's 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 funny how that plays out. We we actually we submitted an offer yesterday that was uh, uh, an option agreement. I think the market's shifted a little bit versus you know six or twelve months ago, so they may become more uh, more feasible again in the current market. But um, yeah, it's it's an interesting observation. I think perhaps maybe as we develop, I know you work with investors a lot and, um, I guess trying to get as clean an offer as possible probably is more desirable for the vendor. So maybe that's part of it as well, but they, they, they definitely are something to understand and to know about for the right property, the right vendor situation. They, they can be massively beneficial. Uh, so they, they do work and they can even work on your first deal as, as you've just said, which is, you know, nice to see. They I think they do work. I think it's just being aware that they're they're, they're they're quite difficult to sort of engineer and get off the ground and yeah and you're probably going to get a low a low hit rate on them yeah exactly low hit rate exactly so how would you define your your investment strategy if you like just now if somebody was asking you for the elevator pitch kind of sum up what you do what's your focus at the moment um big hmos large hmos in um article four areas that's that's pretty much what we do now and we've been doing that for the last at least two and a half years or so. Um, I did a couple of projects in High Wycombe, um, 2019, no, yeah, end of 2019 into 2020. Um, so right at the start of COVID, which was an interesting process to work through. But um, from a property point of view and from a medical point of view, um, but then after that, shifted our, our location into in and around Oxford, um, which is pretty much all an Article 4 area. Um, and to get that kind of strategy to work um, financially, uh, we felt that sort of going down the larger HMO route was was the way forward. So that's kind of really what we do. Buy a house, big refurbs, uh, big extensions, um, and then go into the into that sort of space. Minimum of eight beds up to 12 beds is kind of our, our sort of target um, number of rooms. Okay. And from a planning point of view, you know, the, the article four thing puts a lot of people off at larger HMOs. So you're into that kind of sui generis use class, put a lot of people off. Not not for you, if anything, I'd say it's become a bit of a, a speciality of yours, understanding planning policy, knowing what you can and can't achieve and getting some really, really big, really interesting schemes approved doesn't seem to phase you. No, I guess we've built up to it over time. Um, you know, we did a, a four-bed HMO. We did a six-bed HMO, both of those obviously out of our Article 4 area. We then did a, um, a six-bed HMO that we added up to an eight-bed HMO, um, slightly outside of the Article 4 area, but close to Oxford. And then we did a, uh, a nine-bed HMO 
in Oxford itself. Um, and that was um, effectively a, a conversion of, a, of an existing house, uh, quite a large existing semi-detached house, with which we did a big dormer loft conversion on the back and converted into, into a nine-bed HMO. Um, and that, that, yes, there were hurdles to it. Um, it. There are stages to the planning process as well. Um, and I think, you know, obviously the key thing about Article 4 is trying to minimise over density, oversaturation of HMOs. I think you'll find in every single Article 4 area in the country, there are areas within it where there are not over density and oversaturation of HMOs. So I think it's people are are inherently cautious of them, but I think it's if you understand why they're saying no, and I spent quite a lot of time looking in specifically in Oxford as to why they were getting refused, there are definitely pockets, there are definitely areas where you can get HMO approved. And I think that's probably, I would be surprised if that doesn't replicate across the country. No, I think you're right. I think it, it does. And do you feel like that that time that you invested in building that expertise has given you a competitive advantage now? Do you think that you can operate how, in a way that not everyone can because you know those details of planning policy and HMO density and your, your own patch, it allows you to see opportunities other people might miss or overlook? I think so, yeah, because, you know, the numbers are more attractive on the larger HMOs and that's why we're doing it, you know, particularly down on, in, in, in the south. Um, for me, it's, an, it's a necessity to be able to make the return on investment better. Um, a six-bed HMO it, where I am is very difficult to get to the point where you're removing significant amounts of your, your startup capital and that kind of stuff. So um, it, it, it offers a little more flexibility. I guess it allows you to potentially be a little bit more competitive on on what you're going to be paying to the seller. Uh, you know, again, the old adage, you, you make your money when you buy, not when you sell or when you refinance is really true. And, you know, I'm I'm still keen to not overpay, particularly in the current climate. Um, mm-hmm. And, I, and I'm, we're still fairly selective with what we buy. And it's more dictated by what I can, what I can do with, with the property. I think for me, probably the bigger, the hurdle of the two in terms of planning is actually how, how much can I add to this, this, this site rather than is the HMO side of it going to be a bigger hurdle? Yeah, there are, there are bits of it that you need to be careful with that you can't, can't sort of um, get wrong, but but it's more about how much can we add extensions and, and to what degree can we extend this this property to add additional value and space. Yeah, and again, something I've I've seen from some of your plans is that uh, you know really kind of maximizing the the development potential, site extensions, rear extensions, loft conversions, often all of the above at the same time. I think one of your recent projects was a, a twelve bed. HMO um, that was a fairly recent completion of yours. Is that one that you you finished over the summer? Yeah, we finished that. That was um, that. Ironically, that was an option agreement. Um, okay, we did. We finished that in um, end of July, early August. Um, mm-hmm. uh, that's yeah. So twelve bed HMO it was originally a five bed detached property that we converted into twelve bed. And what does that look like from a? Uh, a layout, a floor plan point of view to go from a five bedroom house up to a 12 bed. Was that, you know, kind of all those things we mentioned, the side extensions, the rear extensions?
Oh, I just lost you a bit there, Mike. Um, what does it look like? Effects, can you hear me? Yeah, you're back, yeah. Right. Um, yeah, so effectively what we, we had a – it was quite a uh, a long, thin property. It was uh, – well, it wasn't really that thin. It was probably, I think, about nine metres wide. Um, uh, we did a, a sort of – but the, it wasn't – the sort of front of the house was kind of the end of the house, if that makes sense. So the, the longer aspect was running from uh, front to back on the, on the plot, not side sure. to side. Um, we did a side extension on that, uh, about three and a half meters wide and about nine meters in depth. Um, we did a, uh, a wraparound sort of single story rear extension on that as well. And then we also did a side dormer on that. Um, to effectively, we were, we were, we were lucky, had a big roof space, really nice height. So we put two bedrooms up in, in the loft space, um, with two en suites. On the first floor, we had four bedrooms, all en suites. So actually, we had one bedroom without with, with its own bathroom that's separate. And we do that actually as a policy. It's a bit of a sidestep, this, but we always have one of the bedrooms without an en suite. It has its own bathroom, but that bathroom is effectively accessible by the rest of the house just in case one of the other en suites goes wrong or whatever. Yeah. Um, we have a separate kitchen on that first floor, a small kitchen, and we've actually just kept that for the four tenants on that first floor, use that kitchen. And then on the ground floor, which is a much bigger space, we've got six bedrooms and then a large sort of 30, 32 square meter kitchen diner area uh, with a separate utility room and things like that. So, and all, and all of those bedrooms on the ground floor are on suites as well. So 12 bedrooms, 12 bathrooms, two kitchens, basically. Nice. Is that is that two kitchen thing? It's something we've never done. I see people doing it, but I, I, I've always heard for a, a single larger kitchen. Do you find the two kitchens get used Equally, do the right tenants use the right kitchens or, you know, they're like, oh, well, my friend uses this one, so I want to use the other one. Does it work out pretty well in practice? It does, actually. We, we kind of set, you set the ball rolling at the start and, um, you know, uh, the letting agent manages it quite, quite efficiently. Um, there's only stuff, there's only four storage cupboards in the four person kitchen. So, you know, it would be difficult for someone else to use it. Maybe someone could come boil, make a cup of tea or something like that, I guess, yeah. but cooking up all that kind of stuff it works really well i mean for me i've done done quite a few nine beds eight beds we're doing a couple of ten beds at the minute um and those are all sort of single kitchens i think once you go north of 10 beds for me i think it's quite you need a pretty solid sizable kitchen to accommodate more than 10 people for sure yeah just it's quite an obvious thing to do i think also um from a hmo licensing point of view um, it's a bit gray on what you need when you go north of 10 tenants. Um, and we just felt that having two kitchens would probably overcome some of those potential licensing issues as well. Okay. Makes sense. Now, I, one thing I'm always reluctant, we, we obviously speak to a lot of people about HMO investing and, and help them get started. And I am always reluctant to talk about commercial valuations on residential property the idea of going and buying a terraced house you know three bed terrace and converting a lounge into a bedroom and expecting that you're going to double the value of it overnight it's i'd love to say it was it was possible some people can pull it off but i think the reality of the situation is more often than not you're still going to be looking at bricks and mortar valuations on those type of residential properties but where it can work is you know, the type of situation that you're in, you've got the Article 4 directive, which restricts supply. So commercial lenders see that as a positive. You've got that sui generis use class. So again, 
uh, lenders will see that as a different beast to a smaller C4 HMO. You've got the the vast scale of development that really makes this uh, a purpose-built HMO. It's no longer a residential house. I'm right in thinking that that typically on on your resi stuff, you are able to to go down that commercial mortgage commercial valuation route with your HMOs. Yeah, definitely. I mean, that's that's the sort of that's the that's the whole aim as to why we're doing this. Really, isn't it? Is to is to get that commercial valuation at the back end. So we've done, I think, all of our all of our HMOs apart from the maybe the two in High Wycombe have got commercial valuations on them. Um, Based on a sort of rental versus uh, local yields kind of basis, basically. So yeah, that's that's the end game for sure. Okay, and that I guess is one of the ways that you can make. The, you know, you mentioned larger HMOs help with the the numbers, making the deals stack up, getting that commercial valuation. You're looking to pull out probably not all of your cash, but certainly more than you'd be able to do on bricks and mortar. Can you talk me through even high level? Uh, you know, just the, the sort of numbers that you're looking at on a deal like this. Yeah, sure. So um, uh, we purchased this for seven two five. Um, so it's quite a quite a chunky purchase price. Um, um, but it was say it was a detached big house. It was certainly the biggest project we'd done to date. Um, both sort of from a not necessarily from a, probably from a build point of view, but definitely from a purchase price point of view and a spend point of view. Um, we spent around about. Uh, I was looking through the numbers now. We had um, about fifteen grand on on legals. There was quite a lot of process around that. We had a few planning applications to work through the option fee, which was about a thousand pounds plus the, the legals to set up the option agreements. That added a bit of extra cost. Uh, valuations. We spent around about twelve thousand. Planning surveys, licensing was about eleven and a half thousand, and then finance and interest costs were about one hundred and ten k. Obviously, when you're Borrowing a fair chunk of cash, um, it's going to cost you a fair amount of money and interest over that time frame. And then we spent just over, just north of four hundred and ten k on the refurb. So um, quite, quite That's significant refurb on this one. Yeah, we were all in for about one point three three, one point three that kind of level. So yeah, it was it was it was a big spend, um, mm-hmm. but you've got a big a big asset at the back end of it, basically. Um, and then sort of valuation on the back end, we got commercial valuation of uh, around about 1.9 million, um, which sounds great. You know, there's definitely a fair chunk of profit on that. Um, but I think one thing you have to sort of bear in mind is, uh, you know, your, your your borrowing costs on the back end are also quite expensive as well. And I think this yeah. deal probably looked a lot better than it did. Uh, you know, it looked a lot better a year ago than it does now that we just just literally refinanced it in the last sort of month or so um on, onto a commercial mortgage with shawbrook um okay. but it still you know it still stacks up really nicely and, and generates a good income per month great okay glad to hear that and something else that you have incorporated into your your, your business approach your strategy your brand is your medical background your your houses are they exclusively for medical professionals or is that just your kind of typical tenant type how, how, how strictly do you enforce that um we're not i wouldn't say we're we're i mean our business is called medshare you know we're branded as a um uh, you know house shares for healthcare professionals really is is our tagline so we have around about 50 to 60 percent of our tenants are junior doctors mm-hmm. um and then we have probably 
another 15% are other healthcare professionals, so nurses, physios, OTs, that kind of thing. We've all, and then the rest of that would be, after that would be young professionals. So we've got, um, there's Oxford, the Oxford Science Park, which is, has quite a lot of research professionals. We've got one of our houses is very close to that, and that's predominantly research professionals. There's the BMW Oxford um, mini plant. Um, there's quite a lot of engineers that are based there. So it's a combination. We've got a few houses near that. So it's a combination of, of I'd say, north north of half are medical professionals. It's it's one of those that I think, and that was born out really, um, it was actually my, I have to give my wife credit for, you know, focusing down on, on sort of healthcare professionals. And it came out, we, we did two HMOs, didn't really think about the tenant profile in High Wycombe, just did them. Mm-hmm. And then COVID came along, finding reliable tenants was potentially a challenge. Um, and I've had my fair share of issues with with tenants back in the day, you know, not paying rent and all that kind of stuff. So it really focused my mind on, right, you know, the crux of this business, yes, you've got to generate rental, uh, yes, you've got to generate development profit. And yes, you've got to try and remove funds out of, of projects and things like that. But you're doing this to generate a rental income. You've got to focus on keeping that maintained because that's the crux of the business. Without rent, um, you know, you're not going to make any money. So it's an obvious thing to say, but I think probably maybe doesn't get enough focus in terms of when you're choosing the location of your HMOs. Um, so being near big hospitals anywhere in the country, I think for me is a real key to having not only a good rental income in terms of charging premium rents because you've got people that are earning good incomes, but also that that tenant profile is just so much more financially stable and reliable in terms of their employment. And COVID kind of uh, highlighted the need to sort of have that going forward on a sort of persistent basis. And it was, as I say, to give my wife credit, it was her who sort of said, look, you're a doctor, Tom. Why on earth don't you start providing houses for medics? And it just links very nicely together. I have contacts within that obviously within that arena um, and that allows us to sort of probably get better access to those kind of tenants as well, which helps. Yeah, no, I, I love the idea. I love the idea of that brand across the houses, the, the the niche, if you like, that you are serving and, you know, not, not exclusively, as you say, you know, you'll accept other professionals if, if they want the house, but it will, it will help you set you apart for sure. And it will definitely, I'm sure, attract more medical professionals to you versus, a house that in in no way uh, is is kind of overtly catered towards them. I, it's also, I think, part of your growth strategy, or certainly, uh, you know, where your your investment has come from. I think you've also managed to tap into the the medical profession and your connection there. Are you happy to talk about that aspect of your business? Yeah, sure. So, um, as every Every kind of business owner, to a degree, and certainly property investor needs you need money. Um, you need you need funds to help you sort of scale your projects. Obviously, we had some startup funds, but nothing anywhere near what we have now as an investment pool. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it, it, it's really I've been using um, predominantly LinkedIn uh, to create connections with with um, other medical professionals, um, mostly consultants, medical consultants, uh, and dentists, um, in order to, to find, um, a pool of, 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 of investors, basically, 
Um, and we've been doing that pretty pretty aggressively, I guess. I mean, aggressive is the wrong word, but what I mean by that is we've, I've actually employed um, someone within, you know, uh, she's actually my wife's auntie and she was doing some work for my father-in-law, but she's very savvy and, and used to working on LinkedIn. Um, and we've been contacting people fully for the last two and a half to three years now, um, just telling them what we're doing, explaining the situation. I think the MedShare brand and, and me being a doctor helps, but we've really f- targeted and focused our our efforts on trying to link and connect with medical professionals to, to sort of, you know, use them as a potential source of investment, which has worked really well for us, certainly in the last sort of 18 months to two years. Again, I think that, that you know, playing to your strengths where you've got your existing connections, it, it makes a lot of sense from a, a conversion point of view, if we look at it from you know, sort of sales lens have the the majority or, you know, what, what sort of proportion of your investment would you say comes from people with some sort of medical background? Um, it's got to be north of 80%, I'd say. Wow. Okay. Uh, we've, we, we probably, um, we have about... Fifty percent of our investment has come from people that I know, and we've raised just in the region of about one point five million now in terms mm-hmm. of private investor funds, which effectively we we use as a as a rolling pool of capital across different projects. We try and release as much of that as we can per project, and we can do that the majority of the time, and, and allows that to be put into other projects. Um, and about half of that fund has come from people that we know, and probably half of that is healthcare professional. And then the other half, um, if not a little bit more, actually, has come from LinkedIn contacts, basically. So people that we have not known previously, we've messaged and contacted via LinkedIn, and then we've built up a relationship over time, and then they've decided to invest in the business. So it's you have to kiss kiss a lot of frogs. There's mm-hmm. there's a lot of, um, and I know we've talked about this quite a lot in the mastermind. You know, there's it, it it really is a numbers game. You know, I've got probably six and a half to 7,000 connections on LinkedIn now. Um, yet we've probably got about 10, 10 investors, 12 investors, that kind of level. So I, I, we are now at the stage where we're probably um, saying no to investors to a degree, just because we've got the number of projects that we need to do at, at the right time. But I might expand that out again next year. Um, but as I say, you, you, you get a lot of no's. You get a, a serious number of no's compared to the yeses that you get. But as again, as we've talked about, you don't need a huge number of yeses in order to generate some some investor funds that allow you to grow your business, basically. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, talking about saying no just now, maybe saying yes in the future. What what is the the plan for the continued growth of the portfolio? Is it more of the same rinse and repeat, or have you got plans to go off in any different <clears> directions? I don't really know, to be honest with you, Mike. I don't know if everyone has these grand plans. I, I do have ideas. I think my short term plan over the next year is to do another five projects um on top of what we've we've got coming through so we've got a we've got a, a, a two ten beds we're building out at the minute um we've got a nine bed and a ten bed going through purchase um with planning sort of ongoing um and i would like to do another three projects on top of that next year so complete the two we're doing at the minute and do another five <clears throat> after that um i, I, I certainly would we're sort of in a bit of a shift at the minute with our business. So it was just me that's been running this whilst working part-time as a doctor. I've been doing two days a week as a medic, two and a half days a week as a medic. And then also running this on my own, I've had minimal support, but 
in the last month or so, we've just brought on a, a PA who's been fantastic and just really opened opened my eyes to, to, to sort of what support looks like in a business like this and, and can take some of that administrative burden from my hands. Um, we've just got to the point where we've also uh, agreed to bring in a letting agent to manage our lettings management in-house. So for the next year, it's very much focused on bringing the letting management in-house, which is currently outsourced, and setting up the business where it's sort of running slightly less um, dependently on me, if that makes sense. And then that will allow me to hopefully get the HMO development side, not completely automated, but I will probably be slightly less involved in that, still be involved in the finance, still be involved in the planning and the building. I can leave very much to the contractors and then the end finance. I'd love to go into sort of development. I'd love to go into sort of doing um, some new build stuff. I really want to, Jen and I really want to build our own house. Um, so that's kind of on the radar in the next sort of 12 to 18 months. Um, and then I'm actually starting to do a um, a planning mastermind course specifically focused on sort of planning gain and planning developments. Um, I'm starting that in January alongside your mastermind as well um, to sort of maybe look at doing that sort of over the next sort of 12 to 24 months, but certainly focused on HMOs for the next year. Lots of education. I mean, every, you know, I think we've mentioned four different mastermind groups today, all probably look yeah. very different and just Sometimes, use the same yeah. the same kind of broad broad name but has that i'm, I'm I, this is not I'm, I'm not looking to plug anything here whatsoever but it sounds as though education and and surrounding yourself with with other people has played an important role in your your progress has it been something that you have genuinely benefited from oh massively you know i i kind of um I use the same principles of how I've learned to be a surgeon. Um, you know, it's effectively an apprenticeship, you know, learning to be, to operate. And I've learned off loads of great surgeons over my time. Um, and I sort of have taken the same, same approach, I think with, with property, you know, I certainly started off doing a mastermind. Yeah, it was, a, it was a financial investment, two masterminds, financial investment, but I think it gave me the confidence to get going. And I think, I've then had a mentor for about three years who's an experienced HMO developer who's guided me through the process of, I guess, setting up uh, an HMO business. And then for me now, it's – and the reason why I've, I've joined your mastermind is is there are other advanced – more probably slightly more advanced, kind of been in the game a bit longer, know what they're doing, have set up established businesses. And that's, for me, been invaluable really um, just to sort of get that experience of others who have who have done what I'm trying to do in uh, currently and over the next sort of year or two and then I think going forward it's it's just going into the sort of development side of things potentially just having that expertise there minimizing the errors that you're going to make you're still going to make a bucket load of mistakes but hopefully they're not quite as big as they could be if you were just kind of winging it um it gives you the confidence I think to go a little bit harder a little bit faster as well you know um rather than sort of I'm naturally quite risk averse and, and I often want to know all know everything before I take the plunge. But sometimes having that backup, having that kind of community support, even on a one-to-one basis, gives you the confidence to get going. So for me, you know, absolute no-brainer, worth worth every penny. Yeah, sure. good to hear that. It's interesting. I, I, I jumped on a call last night with a, a group predominantly of, of US-based folks that um, – 
we we try to have a catch up sort of once a month, and I I missed the last few, but that 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 power of surrounding yourself with with people who are driven and and optimistic and kind of see endless potential. We we had a, a very out of the blue call last night from an estate agent who uh, yeah we'd, we'd viewed a house seven seven years ago probably uh, this house takes pride of place in the middle of our vision board, not necessarily thinking it will be that house, but it really kind of epitomizes what we want out of a, a forever family home. We viewed it just before we went sailing. Um, ultimately, we, we weren't able to secure it. There was a, a, a backstory there, but you know, we, we went away. We thought it had gone and I uh, got a call from an agent last night saying the, the guy that bought it sat on it for, for six or seven years, hasn't done anything with it. Um, it's potentially coming back to market. Would you be interested? So I went into this call last yeah. night and I just kind of shared that story and the, the people in the room, you know, their immediate question isn't, I mean, cause this is, it's, it's a big house. It's an expensive house. We're probably, we, we didn't have any intentions of moving in the near future, but you know, immediately they're jumping into solutions mode. There's never any problems. It's okay. Well, what do you need to change in, in your business and your, your approach in your life to make that? A reality, and I think just being surrounded by people who who give you that support and an encouragement rather than you know posing problems or it it, it just it, it kind of frees you to think that your business can be whatever you want it to be, and it's it's nice to have that that support around you. So it was nice from my point of view just to kind of get that reminder last night as well. But I'm glad it's been been a beneficial experience for you. Um, just to I wrap us up, sort of go on, Tom, sorry. Sorry, say I think just to sort of back that up, I think, you know, that's probably for me the biggest shift in mindset of running a business from coming from a very stable, employed kind of background in medicine. You know, um, you walk around going, oh, life's unfair. You know, why is this happening to me? And that has gone wrong and that's gone wrong. And actually, I think the the shift in mindset I've had to have is is you do have to have a a sort of solutions-based you know, focus to it rather than a problem-based sort of negative focus to it. And you're going to get curveballs. You're going to get things go wrong. This is part of the game. And can you can you handle that? Yeah. You need, it takes a bit of time to get used to that. But then just looking at it from a different mindset, and as you say, rather than coming at seeing a load of problems, say, okay, let's find the solutions. I think that's, that's probably one of the key elements of, I think, being a successful business owner and being self-employed and entrepreneurial. Um, and I think masterminds certainly help, as you say, help that process. Yeah, for sure. Um, so just to wrap us up, um, a lot of people listening to this will be thinking about doing their first deal, just getting started. Thinking back, you know, I guess a uh, similar question to the, the one that your dad asked you recently on holiday, you know, if you could go back and, and have your time again, would you do it the same? For somebody who's just thinking about starting out in the, the property space just now, what what advice would you give to them or what what tidbit of information that you've gleaned over the years do you think could help them the most um get educated um and there's various different ways that you can do that um i think there's a lot of content out there now um some of it is free some of it is 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 obviously very expensive and there's stuff in the middle um so i think trust Research who you ed- who who educates you. Take take everything with a pinch of salt. I think would be probably my initial sort of stance <laughs> on it. But there are definitely people out there that can can help you and are coming at it with a from a in a, in a morally right way. Whatever. Let, let's keep it 
not non-political. But um, I think that's probably the, the key element to get started. Start speaking to people that you know um, who may have investor funds. Uh, that's that's a really huge hurdle to overcome. So it, it's hard to to raise money, um, but it's not impossible. So I think start start having those conversations around sort of potentially who may be able to help you if, if you don't have a sort of pool of capital. And then, this, and then the third thing is just just to get out there and start, you know, figuring out what you want to do via education and then get out there, start viewing houses, start appraising deals, just get on with it. When I had my mastermind sort of um, program, I had a mentor that came to sort of stay with me for two days right at the beginning. You know, I'd been in the game for six months. I hadn't bought a house. I had all these things I was appraising and I was just kind of wafting around and he just sort of effectively said to me, Tom, you got it all there. You just need to now get out of your own way and get on with it. So um, taking that first step is probably the hardest one to do. But ultimately, you know, once you take it, hopefully uh, there's no looking back. And I've certainly, you know, enjoyed the journey that I've been on for the last four years, uh, definitely. So, yeah, do it. Get on with it. Take the plunge would be my, my bottom line advice. But make sure you're doing it with as much support and education as you can. Fantastic. And for anyone who's who's looking to get in touch with you or maybe wants to follow your story, where are you active online? How can people reach out to you or get in touch? Yeah, so we're on um, MedShare UK um, as an Instagram. Uh, we are on Facebook uh, as well, same same sort of uh, tagline. There's, we've got a website, uh, MedShare.uk, um, and my email, um, Tom at MedShare.uk. So um, yeah, I'm, I'm sort of on. We're not. I wouldn't say we're we're kind of um, all over social media. That that will improve a little bit over time. I think now we've got a bit more admin support, but um, certainly on a website or email, um, I'm more than happy to have conversations with people, network, and all that kind of stuff. Um, you know, I've learned a lot and gained a lot from people being kind to me. So I'm more than happy to sort of pay that back um, um, in, in a way as well. So yeah. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. I've had a blast speaking to you. Hopefully, I'm sure there'll be uh, a lot of value in there for everyone listening as well. Good luck with your future projects. And uh, I'm sure we'll get the chance to speak again soon. All right. Yeah. Cheers, Mike. Thanks for having me.